You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt. And I'd like to begin our um, gathering here today by calling in the spirits. I'd like to call in the ancestors to join us here today. I'd like to call out to those, all those who lived well and died well. All those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful into our lives. Those who carry the lineage of all those who have gone before us. Maybe learn from these people. I call out to these ancestors to gather around us here today for this very important topic. To talk about the earth, the time and the people that we are, and what we are called out to do. And I call out the ancestors to be with us here today, that we might be strong and courageous in our hearts, that we might know that there are risks to take, new ideas to embrace, and old things to do in new ways. And we ask these ancestors to stand with us, to help us to find the way for the descendants who are coming. And I call out to the earth below, that ancient ancestor, that one that brings us this life of great beauty, this life that we experience here on this planet is such profound gift. And may we each take a moment and give thanks for the gift of life today, this beautiful day, whatever this day holds for you. We give thanks to the earth for life. We give thanks to the earth for the opportunity to be here in form to connect and interconnect with other living things, be they human and non-human, that we might connect with the earth, with the stones, with the plants, with the rain, with the oceans, with all that is this amazing ecosystem of life and all of its great diversity around this globe. We call out to the earth with our hearts to give thanks for life. And we draw up the energy of the earth into our bodies and call up into ourselves the energy of belonging, the energy of community, the energy of connection and place and home and grounding, the energy of interconnection and interdependence and the great web of life. And we give thanks to the earth for the wisdom that she offers us should we only listen about how to live here in form in a good way the great and varied wisdom of manifestation. And so as we breathe deeply, extend our energy down into the earth and draw the energy up into our bodies, into our beings, into our hearts, into our minds, and we send this energy up through the sky, through the atmosphere, out into the cosmos, and all the way up to the highest power of the energies above. And by whatever name you call that, there are many names, but by whatever name you call it, call it. Connect with it with your heart and call this energy down. Bring into yourself, bring into your life, bring into these proceedings the energies of blessing, the energy of generosity, compassion, and protection. Bring in the energy of benevolence of this universe and the wisdom of the cosmos. Draw these energies in, connecting all the way back to the ancestors that come from the stars. And draw this energy in. We need all the help we can get as a human's living at this time. So call this energy into yourself, into your day, into our proceedings. And let the energy of the sky and the earth meet within you. Dance and blend in that great dance of the Tao. The yin and yang moving within you, dancing and creating all life as we know it here in that dance. So we give thanks to the earth below, the sky above, the ancestors gathered round, and in the center let us call out the energy of the heart, the energy of the human heart, that amazing, miraculous place that has the capacity to draw up the passions of the belly without forcing them to be other than what they are, 
and draw down the clarity and inspiration that comes from the mind and let these energies dance like fire and ice in the heart until what comes of that dance is something else which is your knowing of why you are here and may your heart give you the courage to do it to do something today that brings your gifts into the world so with all of the spirits gathered around us here today, I give thanks. I ask that these proceedings go forward in a way that what needs to be spoken is spoken and what needs to be heard can be heard. And I give thanks for those listeners that make this show possible by donating their time, their energy, and their money that this show can be available for all who have access to computers to hear for free. So I give special thanks to Govinda and Govinda's messages that have touched my heart. I give thanks to Jacob and to Sharon and to Mary and all of those who have been sending messages of support, questions about shows, and who have offered their um, hard-earned money that the show might stay live. And I ask you to understand this deep peace inside shamanism around the globe, which is to allow yourself to be moved to be moved in the heart by others and to take action from that motivation, the motivation of the heart, and to do in your life what the heart inspires you to do. And so I give thanks to those people that have donated to the show, those of you that have shared it with friends, those of you that are helping it to grow strong by helping it to grow out there in cyberspace. And for those of you that want to donate and don't know how, you are welcome to contact me to get the address to send me a check, but you can also go to whyshamanismnow.com to the support section, click and offer any amount, large or small. Every single penny, ruble or lira is appreciated. Um, every single penny goes directly to keeping the show live and on the air at cocreatornetwork.com. And we want to give blessings and prayers to co-creator for their new studio. This is our first live show for a couple weeks, and we want to everybody yay and give thanks and blessings that the new studio um, is up and running and beautiful for all of us. Ah, so without further ado, I want to give thanks to our guest today, Will. Will Tagle, welcome. What uh, a uh, rich and uh, uh, beautiful message, uh, a blessing from you, calling the spirit. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, we're not normally in the same state, but I think it's kind of funny that we are today. Um, but I want everyone to know that today we're going to explore um, with Will the wild heart hypothesis. And, you know, I get so much stuff flying through my inbox and um, just the idea, just the words, the wild heart just grabbed me and um, so much dovetails with the courageous heart work um, that I've been doing with people that I just really kind of couldn't wait to have this show. So, Will, thank you very much for being with us here today. Uh, for those that you, that, of you that don't know, Will is the author of Sacred Council of Your Wild Heart, Nature's Hope in Earth's Crisis. This is a new book. It's currently available in paperback. Um, and uh, Kindle now, I believe, at Amazon.com. But you can also buy the book from EarthTribe.com, which is Will's website. And uh, Will was a psycho psychotherapist for 35 years. And this practice has evolved into his current role now, which is an eco-spiritual mentor. And we will talk a little bit today about what that means as well. But anyway, Will's been out there for a really long time doing great work. So there's eight books weaving together nature, spirituality, psychology, and relationship. And he is the vice president of community leadership at Wisdom University and um, concurrent with many, 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 many years of formal education and degrees and more letters behind his name than it takes to spell his name in the first place. So he's been out there for a long time. Um, in these years of formal education, Will has also been exploring his own Native American heritage and received the trainings in those traditions as well. Um, so to find Will out there in cyberspace, you can go to earthtribe.com. And if you want to contact Will, you can do will at earthtribe.com. That's very simple. 
Um, I also want to acknowledge and give thanks to the Society of Shamanic Practitioners. This is an SSP-sponsored show. And if you want to find them and the archives of other interviews um, with other practitioners, you can go to shamansociety.org and find the other SSP-sponsored shows. We are live this week, Yahoo, after a couple weeks of um, recorded shows, and you are still invited to call in at 512-772-1938. You obviously can click the Skype button at the co-creatornetwork.com site, and you are always welcome to email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. All right, so Will... Uh, before we launch into the Wild Heart, uh, could you share with us a couple moments in reflection in your life? They may be long moments, but moments as you look back that are the real pivotal moments that brought you to your own Wild Heart. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, one one passage from the book um, I'll refer to um, when when I was uh, um, just before uh, getting the download of testosterone as a as a young man uh, and as a boy, um, I had a special place, kind of a cave underneath a spreading juniper tree, and um, I present in home where I grew up was a conch shell, and uh, it had been passed down to my uh, nuclear family from my uh, great-great-grandmother, who uh, was taken from uh, the Ohio River Valley as a slave and brought to Texas. And she received, according to family stories, and you never know exactly uh, how historical the family stories are, but uh, had been given the shell by a local uh, shaman of the Tonkawa tribe. So uh, I would uh, go out on summer days, much like today, and in the shade of this little cave underneath a spreading juniper tree, uh, blow this conch shell. And the sound of it uh, awakened in me a very primal sense of myself and the world that was, uh, in retrospect, I can think, being drawn out of my cells from the primordial era of the shaman coming through, through the shell itself. And you may know that that the conch shell is the uh, oldest known instrument. Drums may have been older, but they decayed and shells don't. But we do have evidence of the first humans blowing the conch shell 38,000 years ago. So there was a sort of uh, an intuitive linkage between my heart and this sound and the sound made by humans throughout their long story, our long story. And so that would be one moment that I think of. Um, another moment would, would be uh, that just bubbles up uh, at this moment. Uh, after I um, um, studied and, and finished my first doctoral degree, and started practicing psychotherapy, I uh, found that the people that I was working with, uh, depression, anxiety, relationship disturbance, addictions, and so on, various difficulties, uh, after a while they started to get better, many of them, and they asked me questions about the bigger sense of the world than just the therapy room and and their own particular personality tension, and I just had no real answer at that point, uh, given out of my formal training. And I was at uh, a gathering of the American Academy of Psychotherapists, and we were in uh, 
uh, ghost ranch out near Abiquiu in New Mexico. And I had done some searching uh, in, in my tribal and shamanic background, but had not really made any deep connection. This was in, in my late 30s. And uh, uh, so uh, at this gathering of the American Academy of Psychotherapists, they, the leaders said, you know, why don't we invite a, um, a, a local medicine man to come, uh, you know, do his thing? And it was thought of in kind of a humorous way, like, like juggling or a hot air balloon ride, something like that. So I was having breakfast one morning, and... Um, uh, the day he was supposed to be there and talk to us at noon, they didn't really give any uh, any uh, substantial part of the day to him. And and the uh, moderator of the conference uh, came running into the cafeteria and said, "We will, will we know you 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 know a little bit about shamanism or something?" And and this man that we we've asked to come speak to us at noon, he he showed up this morning at about 7 o'clock, and he's sitting underneath a cottonwood tree. And we tried to talk to him, and he really doesn't say anything. He's just sitting there. And would you go out? And we're concerned uh, because he's off schedule. So I went out and and, uh, introduced myself. His name is uh, Bearheart. And... uh, he he was from a long lineage uh, called the Ahachecha uh, uh, Medicine Circle uh, of, of uh, elders uh, from different tribes and uh, quite famous in his world. So I asked him what he was doing, and he, he said, I'm just sitting here. And I said, well, you know, they don't expect you until noon. And he said, well, I'm here, and this is what I plan to do today. I said, you're just going to sit here under the tree? And he said, yeah, and this is what I'm pulled to do. So I said, well, do you mind if I sit with you? And he said, no. So we sat there in silence, and after a while, we began to talk. And uh, um, soon other people walked by. I was supposed to lead a seminar that morning, that morning and my co-leader came and said, you know, we got to go. It's, it's nearly 10 o'clock now, and you've got to be... Teaching, and I said, you know, I, I think it's more important for me to stay here. I don't know why, but something's tugging at my heart. And so Bearheart and I sat there, and after a while, someone came and said, what are you guys doing? And Bearheart said, we're sitting here healing ourselves and and being a part of the healing of this tree and this whole sacred web uh, here at this ranch. And so that person said, well, look, I've, I've got, you know, I've got digestive problems. Do you think you could help me? So Earhart started to work with that person and soon they felt better. And long, long story short, um, maybe a hundred people, uh, prominent psychiatrists and psychologists from around the country were suddenly in a line waiting to talk with uh, one by one, with their various pains, with this uh, simple man sitting under a tree. And so uh, that was really a pivotal moment in my life in awakening my wild heart. And uh, he and I then spent a decade together as he introduced me to the uh, traditional training of their particular circle over a 10-year period. So is this then part of what transitioned you, which I'm sure happened over a period of time, but from um, psychotherapist to um, eco-spiritual mentor? Yeah, you know, that was that was relatively early in my career. So the next uh, 30 years, I... I integrated those two domains of psychotherapy and and uh, medicine practices or shaman practices, and um, then eventually uh, I, I'd served on the state board of examiners in Texas uh, for for licensed psychotherapists, and uh, 
um, I uh, began to see that I wanted a bigger domain than than fit for me, um, particularly as I entered my 60s. Uh, and so I just uh, uh, noticed that that uh, my work was moving more in a ceremonial, more and more in a ceremonial direction. And uh, the term uh, eco-spiritual mentor is one that 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 kind of emerged spiritually out of the environment uh, to describe the work I was doing with people. So could you give an example or share a story to help help listeners understand what it might be like to be with an eco-spiritual mentor? What, oh sure. What that might look like. Yeah. Well, um, really, where the title of the book "Wild Heart" came from, um, I had a uh, almost all of the people who work with me over the last ten or fifteen years come to a an area in the Texas Hell Country. They make journeys from various places to spend time with with me, and um, we we mostly walk. Um, through the forest, uh, over over hill and dale, and and allow to emerge not only out of our dialogue but also out of our hearts and also from the uh, sacred web of the environment itself. And uh, so one day, one of the persons from Austin, Texas, it's a uh, to. Drive out where we live uh, and and spend time. Usually takes at least a half a day for people to to take off from their work and life. And when she arrived and parked her car, uh, the sky was threatening. And uh, so uh, my office is right near where she in our our house, right near where she parked her car. And so I said to her. Um, do you want to walk today, uh, or would you like to sit uh, under a shelter here in case it rains? And she said, "No, no, I brought my umbrella. I want to. I want to walk." And uh, so I took. I counted them later, but I took eight steps from my office out into the weather, and that eight steps took me from the confines of my own personality into the world of the heart, of the wild heart, where my usual personality patterns were challenged by the unpredictability of the weather. And so we walked, and in our walk that day, it rained nearly uh, uh, an inch of rain. Uh, it, and it was magnificent, the wind blowing and thundering, and and we got wet and finally gave up our umbrellas, and, and, and yet there was such a feeling of connection and freedom. Uh, and so when we sat down to dry off with our towels, um, she looked at me and she said, it was only eight steps. To my wild heart, mm. and uh, I began to think about this inner council of selves that we all have: our inner critic, our inner pleaser, our inner perfectionist, and so on. And and for most of us in our culture, we lo- we have a deep yearning, a longing a longing for something that we can't quite put our name, a name to. And I, I started to think the wildness that I felt walking in this rainstorm was the longing for that part to sit down in council and offer its wisdom to the rest of me and to her. So that uh, that's kind of the genesis of, of of really the writing of the book. So why don't you uh, share with us a little bit? Probably should define a few terms before we launch into things like wilderness and wild heart and just the basic things that you're now going to be using 
continuously for the next half hour. Sure, <laughs> so. sure. Well, well, I I do redefine wilderness uh, because you know wilderness in the sense of a hundred. 150 years ago is pretty is is pretty much gone. Not only in the USA but also on the planet. So for me, wilderness I define wilderness as that is that uh, field, that domain where human control is deeply challenged. So uh, eight steps from my office. We were in wilderness because the weather, particularly storms, but weather in general, uh, it, it continues to be a, a powerful reminder of how little control humans have. We have the illusion that we've got a uh, hundred units of control when, when in reality we've we got a tiny little less than 1% control of what's going on. So anytime we step into any environment that deeply challenges our personality and our usual ego control, uh, according to the way I experience it, we're in wilderness. And, and how about the wild heart? Let's define that for people. Okay. So... Um, I'll give you an example. This morning I was sitting at breakfast with my mother-in-law, who's uh, going to be 99 in a couple of weeks, and and Judith, my spouse, her mother. And uh, my mother-in-law's name is Eldora. And um, um, she has uh, an affinity with the wild. Uh, and the older she's gotten, the more the affinity has emerged. And as we sat there, it looked out, our, our breakfast area looked out on a deck, and a um, uh, we were talking about a first one thing, then another, something been on television, a, a movie we watched, or so on. And, and there flew into onto the patio table a blue jay with a peanut in its beak. And he was the kind of blue jay that, that they don't see around this part of Oregon, but we see a lot of in Texas. Hmm. So the blue jay was out of context. And she hadn't seen this bird since last summer when we were here. When, once again, he flew into this similar area with a peanut in his mouth, his beak. And at that moment, you see, we shifted from little talk around the breakfast table about movies or current events. And suddenly, nature herself, the sacred web, drew out of us a sense of wildness that I'm calling the wild heart. And so I think one more definition, and then we'll carry on, which would be the sacred council. Yeah, yes. Well, uh, as a psychologist, you know, um, I discovered that when when, uh, we introduce ourselves, like I say to you, hi, Christina, I'm Will, we have the illusion, and it's a useful illusion, that I, I'm a unified being called Will, and you're a unified being called Christina, and, and so we can, we can meet each other. But, you know, as we look deeper, we see that Christina is a very complex entity, and so is Will. So I have many parts of myself, sub-selves, that that roam around inside of me. Uh, you know, I have a grandfather inside of me, a father, a spouse. I have a therapist. I have an inner uh, wise person. I have an inner foolishness. Uh, and so I have a whole array 
of parts inside of myself. And through my tribal background, I, I saw and see the value of counsel. Uh, in my book, I, I uh, refer to uh, to the fact that uh, Franklin and Adams and Jefferson all called on the uh, the uh, form of democracy in the Iroquois, where they used the council as one of the principal ways of addressing issues. And unfortunately. Uh, the er, er, early uh, American founding parents didn't really incorporate that much of the Iroquois democracy. And if they had incorporated the principle of the talking stick and the inner council and the outer council, perhaps we wouldn't be so deeply entrenched in this uh, dichotomy that we're in in the United States right now. But inside myself, you see, I think about an inner council of all of these different parts running around inside of me, trying to grab the microphone or the talking stick and trying to have their say-so. And uh, uh, in the midst of that, I want to invite in the wild heart to have a a prominent part in the conversation of the inner council. Beautiful. All right, everyone. So we have wilderness and the wild heart and the inner council all defined here for us as we go forward. So with that done, um, I'd like to read the wild heart's hypothesis. So So this hypothesis states, if we are to survive and thrive as humans on planet Earth, we will need to dive deeply into the roots of the shamanic era and retrieve our soul's connections, our intimacy with all forms of the universe. So um, there might be something you want to say about this hypothesis, Will, but I'd like to also get to a place where what would you like people to do with this hypothesis? Well, uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, As I was beginning to write this book, I was uh, co-teaching a course at Wisdom University in the Redwoods uh, of the Bay Area and uh, with Andrew Harvey. And we were talking about um, this condition that the planet is in right now. And uh, it occurred to me that we were in inside a protected setting in a beautiful retreat building. It was wintertime, early December. Uh, late fall, I guess it was. And um, it was, you know, about 40 degrees outside, and uh, there'd been a little bit of frost on the ground, and uh, I suggested that we go outside for meditation. And there was a lot of resistance in the group to that, vulnerability. Uh, you know, would it be too cold? Would, would we would we get ill? Uh, it's inconvenient, and so on. And it dawned on me that here we were talking about the the difficulty the planet is in, and we were trying to do it without a close connection with the natural order. And so I said out loud to Andrew and others, I said, the crisis of the planet is happening in the loins of the earth, and literally so. At that time, we were spewing millions of gallons of oil into the vagina of the earth in the Gulf of Mexico. And yet we were talking about it in kind of an abstract way, protected from the raw, the raw elements of nature. And, and so it, it, it occurred to me that in order to address the issues of the earth, we have to return, we have to leave our protected space of our usual egos and move into that deeper place where our hearts can not only be open, but pound a little bit with the, with the lack of control we have once we leave air-conditioned space. So in your book, 
um, in the very beginning, it, you, there are some proposals, and I thought I might just go through those so people can begin to sense where we're going here. So proposal number one, and these are proposals, right? that our biggest problem is that we think we do not have a problem. The next proposal is that we are addicted to a lifestyle outrageously beyond our means, and our decadent habits now place our species on the endangered list. Proposal number three, as we transform our own addictions, we position ourselves to become solutions to Earth's crisis. And I think we need to circle back around to this one as well. Um, number four is fairly long, but the essence of it here is there are no significant solutions will arise without radical new practices to recover the wild heart birth in Mother Nature's womb. And finally, the proposal, in many ways, you were just illustrating, that we have lost our root connection to the earth. And only by descending to our roots can we grow a new earth. And I want to come back to these proposals, but I also want to just put this into the context of, you know, as someone who's teaching shamanism in the contemporary world, largely with Westerners. One of the things about shamanism, particularly as it's presented through journeying in air-conditioned, climate-controlled rooms, <laughs> is that, yeah. you know, it becomes this profound experience. It's not inauthentic. And yet, as I work with people, because I have a four-year program and I'm working with all four aspects of the person, it is very easy for contemporary people to bring that profound experience of that direct connection with spirit into the realm of their mental overwhelm, addiction, need-to-know-more-information space. Right. Because they're not in their bodies and their bodies are not on the earth and that there is an aspect of sort of harvesting the altered states out of the practices of indigenous people around the world and we we contemporary people need to come to terms very much in the same way these proposals challenge us to come to terms with the fact that we're really not quite getting it <laughs> if we're not willing to take the answers we or the messages we get from spirit into our bodies and put our bodies here on this planet and do something here engaged with the earth and other people and other living things that that it's that the tendency for a contemporary person is to keep it all in the head right right yeah very well put and and um there the two major currents in in uh, cross cultural shamanism that I've been able to discover, um, one is is what I've been alluding to that the role of the shaman uh, or the wise person is is to keep alive the permeability between the community and the larger nature. Um, so if you, like, like, like with my great-grandmother, um, the practices that she learned once she came to Central Texas had to do with how to keep alive the relationship of people to the forest in such a way that that there was healing for both the forest and for the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so that's one great function. In other words, in my way of thinking, and with the Earth Tribe and Wisdom University, our whole goal is to is to open the door between humans and more than humans. Mm -hmm. All of the community of relatives, as you said so beautifully in your in your calling of the spirit. Okay, that's one form of shamanism or one aspect. The other aspect is the one you mentioned that has been picked up by our modern and postmodern culture, namely the altered states of consciousness that come from contacting the spirit world through journeying and so on. 
Well, in in um, in the way I was taught, uh, the altered state is really uh, useless unless it becomes a tuning device between humans and more than humans. So if we go to a workshop or some training process and we learn how through drumming or or a a theogenic drug or a vision quest or a sweat lodge or whatever the means, if we learn how to alter our consciousness, but we don't realize the very function of that is to draw us into greater harmony and in meaning transfers between the more than humans and the humans. That, uh, that's where the healing takes place. Uh, and that's why I left the psychotherapy treatment room, is I realized that, that the inner work is only the first little part of it. The big show is between the humans and the more than humans. And in a certain sense, we're really talking about a quality, a mature relationship, a quality of, of a mature relationship versus developing an addictive relationship with the altered states, for example. And I think the other piece about the psychology, I've seen this written by a number of people now, is really talking about, like you said, that first little step, in a sense, is how we grow up so we can start to have mature relationships with things. Yeah. Like me. I, I love the way you put that. But, but let's circle back around, though, to addiction because it's, it's a big piece here. This whole um, piece that you talk about that, I mean, gajillions of dollars are spent, right, legally and illegal around people's addictions. Right. And yet you're talking about really using those addictions as a transformational tool or moment or, or situation, but something to get us to – use these very addictions to to revolve around them in a way to come to this other place. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. You know, and I've worked with addictions for 30 years uh, in, in, in a psychotherapy setting as well as, as the shamanic setting. And and I came to see that that if you're talking about alcohol or drugs or, or food, uh, or, uh, or any other compulsive uh, behavior. Really, I think it's growing out of this deep yearning that I mentioned earlier that we have where we, where we yearn for uh, a state of consciousness that's bigger than ourselves so that this state of consciousness can tune us in to the marvels of nature around us. And so because we don't have that and because in our dominant culture in Western civilization going all the way back to Plato, we've been pushing away from the sensual of the forest, the senses of the forest and of the ocean and of the desert. Since we've been pushing away from that, we're left with compulsion in pornography and drugs and food and 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 so it arises inside of us as a yearning and uh, then it gets twisted into an addiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so in a sense then especially out in a natural environment where we can't just feed our addictions, can we follow the path of our addictions back to that yearning and, and, and touch the, the, the real feeling that's underneath all of that? Right, right. Not only addiction, but any disturbance in the personality is really a pathway to our essence or our heart or our soul. Great. And uh, okay. that, that, in other words, uh, it, if I feel the compulsion to overeat, and instead of acting on that, if I follow it into the inner heart, I will see uh, a diamond. Uh, this is uh, from an image from the Sufi tradition. I'll see a diamond, and there's a particular facet of that diamond of my soul that I can only find through the particular urge I have to overeat at that particular moment. 
but it can be an opening only if I can have enough awareness to follow that golden light, light that that thread to to the facet of my soul that's like a diamond. You know, you're sharing this really beautiful image, and at the same time, I'm having this kind of funny one. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Which is, um, so... It's like there's a kid's table, you know, like at Thanksgiving where big families have the kid's table and the grown-up table. And the kid's table has got all those parts of ourselves that, um, you know, are those unexplored facets, you know, the addicts and, you know, all those, all those people that are just, just, if you let them run wild, they destroy the house, you know, Right. (laughs) they're throwing food and making a mess out of our life there at the kid's table. But we could choose you know, to, to see them as the facets of the diamond and find our way to the grown-up table, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is populated by that sacred council. Yes, right. You know, and so, so uh, <laughs> I don't know why, I just was thinking, yeah. oh, yeah, we got, you know, because it's, we because it has a the... lot to, it has a lot to do with where we choose to place our attention. Yes. Do we care to, to see that self as that facet to follow into that deeper place, or do I just want to have another cookie? And it's it's really my choice. Yes, yes. And uh, if you take the eight steps from the protected place of the ego, which is wonderful. I mean, I'm not, I'm not at war with the ego at all, but take that. All I want to do is to take those eight steps and bring the wild heart into the council. Mm-hmm. And the wild heart, I want to say this, the wild heart itself, that is that deep connection that Bearheart and I felt under the tree that was so attractive to these hundreds of psychiatrists and psychologists, that deep wild heart does not have the solutions to our planetary issues. What it brings is an energy to the table that is in tension with our civilized selves. And it's out of that tension between the wild heart and the civilized selves that arise the possibility, arises the possibility of solutions for our planetary situation. And this is really the Tao. And I talk about this often on the show, how if we lead linearly, there's no tension. Whoever's in charge leads. But at, in a council, there are many dynamic tensions. Um, and, and, that, and, that, and that council doesn't mean necessarily leading through consensus. Because there's a lot of politi- politics right now, quote-unquote, through consensus, what is sort of always arrives at the least good common denominator for everybody. Right. But, but council is about the uniqueness of each of the voices being heard. And the tension created between different voices that creates the place that the creativity sparks into. Exactly. And it's actually, was, in, in picking up on your analogy, the kids not only come to the table uh, of maturity, they also bring the messiness with them. Mm-hmm. And out of the messiness, then combined with the staidness of the adult. Uh, that creates possibility. And that a lot of people don't really understand because a lot of people got shut down as quote-unquote artists because they weren't good enough to make money doing it way too early in their life, but that in art, there is this tension between the image and what I want to create and the materials and it's a mess and stuff happens. But without that mess, the stuff doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. The art can't exactly. happen without the mess. In the and you mess. really are, yeah. And you are talking about that. We need new ideas. We need the tension. We need the mess, or we're not going to get to the new ideas. Yes, yes. There's something. See, with the kids throwing the food and uh, rubbing their hands around in it, and then eventually learning how to sit at the table with the adults in that messiness, then there arises a creativity. Maybe it unleashes the child inside of the adult so they're not quite so reserved, but they also offer their wisdom to the children. 
Now, I want to bring in a piece which you really do beautifully in your book because it's really important is that we're also not talking about one dinner at the table. <laughs> we're talking about a way of being. So I'm going to quote you actually from your book because I thought this was a really beautiful passage that the essential you cannot fully flower until your inner counsel breathes fresh air. That flowering requires more than an occasional high you get from a nature outing. It demands an ongoing practice of connecting with the sacred web of life in its raw form. And so it's not just one gathering of the sacred council and I get my game plan for the rest of my life. It's that not only do I need to keep keep the council going and keep listening, but how do I need to live so that I can have that council and that I can, you know, it's like your book is about how do we do this? How do we live it? So how do we, how do we do this ongoing practice of connecting with the sacred web of life in its raw form? How do we cultivate this relationship with the wild heart? Right. Uh, well, uh, the the um, I'm, I'm writing a book now as, as a companion to Wild Heart called the the, uh, the subtitle is the Mother Tongue. So if you if you think about uh, here I am in the Umpqua Valley where you grew up, and uh, so if if I'm to go out and sit by the Umpqua River where the North and South Umpqua come together. And I go out uh, on a nice day and have a picnic. Uh, it's it's something like a romance uh, with with uh, a man and, uh, and woman or or two people who who have that spark. I mean, it's like the gift of grace of nature is is that great feeling you get on a beautiful day with with these two rivers coming together or, or or with a beautiful man or woman where you're where you're having that moment. But that's very different. It's a gift, but it's very different to become fluent in the mother tongue. The mother tongue requires going to this spot day after day, rain or shine, through different types of experiences and developing a deep communication with that field there that where the rivers come together just choosing that as an example and and this means developing uh, I'm sure in your training that you're teaching people about how important community is so so we we Judith and I have formed this community now that's three decades old called the Earth Tribe, and it's it's really a practice group, a sangha, where where we come together, uh, rain or shine, and and move ourselves out of air conditioned space to feel the deep connection, no matter what is happening in 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 terms of weather and so on. And it re- practices like that is required in order to mature, to move from throwing food and going to the adult table to eat. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, one of the things that I like to do with the show is to offer people a challenge or, or an opportunity to actually take action on what we're talking about. And it seems like you've just sort of led us there. But there's also two kinds of people that, li- well, there's lots of kinds of people that listen. But I like to give, what, what would you say to the person who just stumbled on this show today and never even heard the word shaman before, but is really moved by what you're saying and wants to take this step, wants to take a first step towards his, his or her wild heart. Um, and how could they do that? And let's actually also imagine that that person, generally speaking, is an urban dweller. What mm-hmm. could they do? Well, uh, when when I was living in an urban area of uh, three million people and practicing psychotherapy, we w- we would uh, I, I had many many people just like you just described, and and at some point as they felt better, I would say. Uh, 
is it time for us to leave the office, this air-conditioned space, and walk a few blocks to a park and sit under a tree and see how different we are there, the two of us? And, Christina, I mean, the, the difference in intimacy, the difference in creativity, the difference in the, in the physical and energy exchange between sitting in an office in an urban area and walking a few blocks to sit under a large oak tree is phenomenal. I was in Manhattan a few weeks ago and, and uh, walked with a person in a situation like that to a pocket park, not even Central Park, but to a pocket park. And the, and the reaching out to us by the trees and the flowers and the grass and the sky and the wind awakened in our conversation a dimension that we just didn't have otherwise. And it, it's just that simple because waiting deep inside our hearts as human beings are 200,000 years of humans having this profound connection with the primordial of nature. So it's just a few blocks away, usually. So now, this is a beautiful answer for that group of people, well, anybody, frankly. But there's also practitioners. There's also people with pretty well-developed shamanic practices that listen to the show. So is there a, a step you would offer them uh, that might call out more out of them? What could well, they do? Uh, earlier I said there are two great strands of, of shamanism being practiced around the world uh, that you find a unity in, in, in the deeper tribal, but in, in the dominant culture, there's often a split between the shaman who are more interested in altered states of consciousness and the shaman who are deeply connected with, with the natural order. And so I would really encourage any shamanic practitioners to, to um, integrate those two dynamic aspects of our work. Uh, the other thing I would say, uh, picking up on something that you said a while back, is um, I found with my tribal elders that while they had done incredible amount of work in the shamanic domain, there were personality tangles that they had not attended to. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would say to shamanic practitioners, be sure and continue to pay attention to your own inner psychological dynamics and particularly your intimate relationships. Because I believe the kind of shamanic or sacred leadership we need for the planet today comes primarily through relational leadership. So, so um, the, I think the kind of sacred leadership emerging is is seen not in the individual shaman, but in the relationships that they build. Thank you, Will. That's really beautiful, and that's a wonderful challenge for those of us out there who are practicing. Um, I am beside myself with the fact that our hour is up. <laughs> it's like, what, what happened? Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Will. Um, it has been a pleasure, and since we hardly really even got to talk about the book, I'm going to have to tell everyone to go out and buy it um, and read it. <laughs> Um, because we didn't even hardly get to dive into it other than just speak about what is really at the heart of it, which is that our heart is a wild thing, and that wild voice of the heart needs to be at the table. Like you said, it doesn't take over, it doesn't have to lead everything, but it needs to be one of the many voices that we hear. So, Will, thank you so much. Again, you everyone, you can find Will at um, earthtribe.com, and you can purchase the book there or through Amazon, and if you're a Kindle reader person, you can get it on Kindle as well. Um, Will, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Christina. I look forward to, to meeting you in person sometime. 
And thank you for your work. And thank you for these writings that you're offering us to help to guide us um, as we go forward together. Thank you. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thanks to your ancestors for dreaming of a future that you could be here with us today. Thanks to everyone's ancestors for joining us. Thanks to my own. Thanks to the earth below, the sky above. And thanks to the heart that unites us all. Have a good week, everyone.